Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Postmortems were performed. Numerous chop wounds sustained by the victims appeared to be large and deep. The cause of death were underlying brain injuries, resulting from a considerable amount of force applied to the head. Rudy's injuries suggested that he was surprised or asleep when he was attacked. He was struck first as he lay in bed on his right side. The attacker hacking at the left side of Rudy's head at least four times. This caused extensive scalp lacerations, a skull fracture and blindness in at least one eye. The wounds had been inflicted with a tremendous amount of force and a high rate of speed. Rudy also sustained three minor blunt force trauma wounds to one leg and a wrist. The brunt of the killer's rage had been directed at Rudy, who held his hands up in a futile attempt to fend off the blows, but suffered the most violent attacks out of the three deceased family members. The presence of blood in Rudy's stomach indicated that he didn't die immediately, Instead, he survived for some time, aspirating blood in his left lung and stomach as he continued breathing and swallowing until he eventually lost his fight. Martin sustained four sharp and blunt force trauma wounds to his head and upper back and would have been unaware of his killer behind him until it was too late. This was evident in the lack of any defensive wounds. It was clear that Martin had attempted to shield Rudy from a brutal attack while he was targeted as he lay in bed. Like Rudy, Martin was also found to have blood in his stomach and had aspirated blood into both lungs, indicating that he too had been alive for some time after the attack. The position and general direction of Marley and Teresa meant they probably faced their attacker as he came out of the boy's bedroom. Teresa had rushed from her bedroom and confronted the killer head-on, moving towards him. She held her hands up to defend herself but fell to the ground on her face bruising her hip and sustaining abrasions to her nose. She died almost immediately after being struck in the head, at least three times in the doorway by the axe. Marley was most likely attacked from the front and was probably the last person to be assaulted. She suffered five deep wounds to her skull, in addition to a severed jugular vein and wrist and neck injuries. The teen had fought desperately for her life, sustaining multiple defensive wounds to both her hands. Brain tissue was visible, and her left ear had been partly severed. She sustained a wound to the inside of her left lower arm, as well as bruising and an abrasion to the top of her right hand. Marley's prognosis upon admission to the hospital was very poor. Curiously, the attack on Henry was nowhere near the same intensity as those on the rest of his family. 
Investigators had their work cut out for them in their attempt to identify suspects who held any ill will towards anyone in the family. Martin didn't have any business enemies or professional dealings gone bad. He didn't owe anyone money, and the family wasn't in financial difficulty. Police naturally looked into anyone who had been in a relationship with any of the Venbrada children, including Marley's boyfriend, James. Two weeks before the murders, Marley had texted him about an argument she had had with her parents over their concern about the seriousness of the relationship. James had sent Marley a text message response saying, quote, I know I told you I would tell you everything I always feel or am doing. And right now, I feel like I want to murder the people that are around you. And I am inches away from losing it with them and breaking down completely. But I am being strong to help you and support you, babe. The day after the argument, Marley texted James saying, quote, Deep inside, I still hate everyone in my family except Henry. Haha. <laughs> James' cell phone data confirmed that he was at home the night of the incident. The ground floor windows of the Van Breda home that were open when police arrived could certainly open wide enough for a person to squeeze through. The only other access points to the property were the front door and a side gate. Detectives started to scrutinize how someone could have gained access to the medium security estate without being detected by the cameras, regular patrols, or alarms. The electric fence surrounding the estate was two meters tall at its lowest point, and when it was touched, would have activated an off-site alarm. No unknown visitors went through the main gate on the evening of the murders, and all vehicles entering the estate were accounted for. Between 6 p.m. and 7 a.m., five patrol checks were conducted, and everything was in order. No alarms were activated, no trespassers were reported, Nothing out of the ordinary was detected on CCTV footage. There were no signs of footprints alongside the fence the morning after the murders. The fence had not been cut, and no holes were dug underneath. None of the neighbors reported suspicious persons or incidents in the area. The only unusual event was loud, aggressive male voices, reported as coming from the Van Breda home, lasting from 10 p.m. to 12.10 a.m. on the night in question. The neighbor who reported this had been unwilling to get involved at that time, but told the police she would have reacted if somebody was calling for help. No one came knocking on her door, seeking assistance in any event. All in all, it took investigators three weeks to meticulously gather every bit of forensic evidence from the Van Breda home, approximately 143 exhibits, including blood samples and touch DNA were taken, including swabs of the washing basin, shower, and shower floor in the boys' ensuite. While blood was not visible to the naked eye in the ensuite, officers found signs that objects had been cleaned in the shower that were covered in Teresa, Rudy, and Henry's blood. The presence of blood in the ensuite was curious. As Henry had told police, the attacker hadn't entered the ensuite. Testing showed that Henry's stab wounds had been inflicted by the carving knife. Henry's right thumbprint and Rudy's DNA were evident on the blade, when Rudy's touch DNA was also found on the handle. Rudy and Martin's DNA was found on Henry's duvet. The DNA on the cigarette butts on the kitchen floor belonged to Henry. Martin's fingernail scrapings showed evidence of Rudy's DNA. Well, Henry's fingernail scrapings showed evidence of both Rudy and Teresa's DNA. When hair samples were tested, none of these were found to have come from a person of African origin. 
This contradicted Henry's claim that the killer was black. Another problematic aspect of the forensic evidence, when compared with Henry's account, was that no unknown DNA was found in the home. The hair found in Marley's hand was initially said to be similar to that of Henry's, but was later discounted as belonging to him, as it was too long. Detectives took Henry's iPhone, iPad, and laptop for analysis. Later reports suggested that information was found in his internet search history about axe murderers, as well as chat details in his WhatsApp account regarding drugs. Investigators analyzed the impact mark on the wall above the first landing of the staircase. The axe used in the attack was a match. Henry had told police that he'd thrown the axe. However, the bloodstain pattern on the wall didn't support Henry's version, instead indicating that the axe was under control of whoever handled it. The Van Breda's domestic worker, Precious, identified the axe as one belonging to the family. She told police it was hardly used and was usually stored in the pantry behind the ironing board. James told police he recognized the size and the shape of the axe as similar to one he had seen in the garage and fireplace. He believed Martin had bought it in 2014, but he didn't know of the family using it much. No fingerprints were found on the axe, but this was logical if the killer had worn gloves as Henry claimed. A mixture of Rudy, Martin, and Teresa's blood and DNA was found on the axe. None of Marley's blood was found on the axe, but her touch DNA was, indicating she might have touched it while defending herself. Henry's DNA was found in the blood on the bottom of the axe handle. Outside the residence, blood spatter from Rudy was found on the upper external wall of the neighboring house. This suggested that when Rudy was struck, his blood had sprayed through the open bedroom window and created the spatter against the wall of the adjacent house. Despite an intruder apparently fleeing the residence outside the back door, there was no drip trail of blood that would have been expected given the circumstances. By now, police had received information from the hospital which examined Henry's wounds, strongly suggesting these were self-inflicted. His bloodied clothing was taken for forensic analysis. The front of Henry's sleep shorts had 67 blood spatter stains, belonging to Rudy, Martin, and Teresa, indicating that Henry had been standing close to the three victims when they were struck. Some blood spatters on Henry's shorts had been slightly diluted by the significant urine staining when he wet himself sometime after the attack. Seventeen spatter blood stains on Henry's socks came from Rudy, Martin, and Teresa. On February 5th, Martin, Teresa, and Rudy were honored at a memorial service at the Moraletta Park Dutch Reformed Church in Pretoria. Following the service, Martin's twin brother, Andre, spoke to the Times about the family's sorrow. Quote, It's too terrible to contemplate. Martin was our guide. He held our family together with his calmness and patience. It's with that calmness and patience that we will embrace and support Marley and Henry. Following the memorial service, Henry was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and was prescribed medication. He'd moved out of the family home and with relatives who provided him with much-needed emotional support and the privacy he needed to grieve the deaths of his parents and brother. From the beginning, Henry maintained his innocence to both sides of his family. He had the unconditional support of Teresa's siblings, who were adamant that there was no possible motive for Henry 
to kill his family. It flew in the face of everything they believed about him. However, the media spotlight remained on Henry when, in late February, the Sunday Times made explosive claims linking him to drug dealers. Reports emerged that Henry had an addiction to crystal methamphetamine, or its Afrikaans name, Tick, as well as Daka, or cannabis. Henry's drug problems were said to have started when the Van Bredas lived in Perth and continued after he relocated to Melbourne for university. Martin was reported to have been at the end of his tether with Henry's behavior, threatening to cut off his allowance. More details were released, suggesting that upon Henry's return to South Africa in 2014, he had been admitted to a drug rehabilitation facility in Cape Town. Henry's extended family emphatically denied that he had any such drug issues and rejected any suggestion that there was disharmony in the family. Detectives continued to do their due diligence by pursuing every possible angle. They knew that the Stellenbosch residents had been experiencing home invasions by a gang of men wearing baklavas. Could the same thing have happened here? The gang's modus operandi had been to break into freestanding houses and tie up the occupants with the intention of stealing valuables. Was it possible that on this occasion, they'd evolved and taken things to a horrific new level? The police attempted to trace the intruder via intelligence and informants, but received no information. As investigators analyzed the evidence more closely, they could see that nothing in forensic evidence categorically excluded Henry as the attacker. Yes, his fingerprints weren't on the axe, but it wasn't unusual not to find any on a wooden object like the handle. The lack of any signs of forced entry and the fact that valuable items hadn't been stolen from the home supported their strong suspicions. Aside from a handful of thefts by domestic workers, no robberies or murders had been reported at Desolza during the preceding 17 years. It was logical for valuables to have been left behind if the intruder was interrupted, but it didn't appear as though he'd been disturbed. If the intruder's intention was to steal, surely he would have taken valuables from the ground floor without disturbing the sleeping occupants on the floor above. The intruder would have had to escape out the back door, down the side of the house, and exit through the side gate on the other side of the house. Otherwise, they had to go over the neighbor's wall. Anyone attempting to gain entry would have had to have extensive knowledge of the estate and its security features. Other puzzling questions remained unanswered. Why did Henry call out to warn his mother and sister about the intruder in the boys' room after Rudy and Martin had been attacked? Henry said he was frozen. Why didn't Henry call out to warn his mother and sister about the intruder in the boys' room after Rudy and Martin had been attacked? Henry said he was frozen to the spot with fright, yet he was brave enough to chase the intruder out of the house, which was troubling. When Henry came back inside... He didn't even close or lock the door behind him. If the killer was at large, surely it would have been a priority to secure the house. It would have been impossible for Henry to not be aware of the list of emergency numbers on the fridge during the five months he had lived there. Yet he googled the number. Nor did he seek assistance from neighbors nearby or contact estate security. Instead, he chose to call Bianca, who couldn't have had possibly done anything. When Henry was on the phone to the operator, while he waited for police to arrive, he didn't attempt to assist his family as they were dying, or even Marley who was still alive. Instead, he sat downstairs and smoked three cigarettes. Survivors can react differently in similar circumstances, 
but the lack of urgency during Henry's long conversation with the emergency operator seemed to be highly unusual for a traumatized victim. It was like he had no empathy at all. Police sent the file to the Director of Public Prosecutions, which cited significant progress in the investigation. Marley, meanwhile, continued her recovery, which had been described as nothing less than a miracle. As a result of the attack, she sustained retrograde amnesia and no memory of the night in question and would require ongoing intensive physical and speech therapy and counseling. The extended family were buoyed by Marley's fighting spirit, and in March 2015, she was discharged from the hospital. Both she and Sasha went to live with a maternal aunt and uncle, who would go on to become Marley's appointed guardians. Given she was only 16 years old at the time of her parents' deaths, the court-appointed senior counsel would act on Marley's behalf in a legal capacity and assist her in any related proceedings until after she turned 18. Marley and Henry were initially kept apart following the attack and didn't see each other until five months later. In June 2015, Marley met another milestone when she recommenced her schooling. It was a remarkable demonstration of resilience for someone so young. Marley's relationship with James came to an end four months later in October, but the pair remained friends. By now, Henry had also broken up with his girlfriend Bianca, Christmas 2015 came and went, and the 21-year-old kept a low profile. Deciding not to return to university, Henry enrolled in a cookery course at a renowned chef school in Cape Town in early 2016. It was there that he met a fellow 20-year-old student named Daniela. The soft-spoken young woman had no idea about the cloud of police speculation hanging over Henry or what had happened to his family. The pair soon began dating, eventually moving in together. Daniela found Henry quiet and reserved. He spoke a lot about growing up in Australia, but didn't mention his family much at all. It was only while browsing the internet one day did Daniela come across a news article about her new boyfriend and the terrible fate that befell his family. Daniela was shocked, but refused to believe Henry was capable of such violence. If anything, she felt that what was needed was her unconditional support in the face of intense media scrutiny, while the police continued to work tirelessly to find the killer. Months passed. As far as the public were concerned, there didn't appear to be any meaningful developments in identifying a suspect or apprehending the killer. In fact, it seemed like the investigation had stalled. Despite the best efforts of detectives who had been working hard to gather sufficient evidence that would support their case... According to the book, The Desultsa Murders, Backlogs and Forensic Testing in South Africa which creates long delays and prevent timely arrests, wasn't helping, but the case was about to be blown wide open. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. 
They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Police have been working diligently behind the scenes in conjunction with the Director of Public Prosecutions to tighten up the prosecution case. On June 13, 2016, investigators informed Henry's lawyer that he was about to be arrested. After seeking legal advice, Henry decided to hand himself in to the police. The next day, he was charged with murdering his parents and brother, the attempted murder of his sister, and defeating or obstructing the administration of justice. When Henry appeared in court, he pleaded not guilty. He was released on 100,000 Rand bail, but was not permitted to have any contact with Marley or leave the province. Three months later, in September 2016, a pretrial hearing was held in the Western Cape High Court, but it was somewhat of an anticlimax when the state prosecutor requested a postponement in order to gather evidence that was still outstanding. The media spotlight remained firmly fixed not only on Henry, but also on his girlfriend, Daniela, and not for the right reasons. That same month, the couple were arrested in Cape Town for possessing cannabis, both were granted bail, and the case was postponed given the nature of Henry's upcoming trial. However, the charges were later withdrawn, partly on the condition that Daniela attend mandatory counseling sessions with a psychologist. After further postponements, proceedings finally commenced in April 2017. A judge alone would determine Henry's fate, as the jury system does not exist in South Africa. The first matter to be determined was the question of extent and nature of media coverage. Interest was understandably intense and news outlet Media 24 made an application to livestream the trial from the courtroom. The judge conditionally approved recording and broadcasting of the proceedings, but after concerns were raised by both the defense and prosecution, the trial was again postponed. The defense applied to the Supreme Court of Appeal about the decision to broadcast the trial. But in June 2017, the application was dismissed. The initial proceedings commenced with a trial within a trial, where judge heard arguments regarding the admissibility of Henry's original police statement. The defense argued that Henry had been treated from the outset as a suspect and not a victim, and wasn't appropriately informed of his rights prior to his interview. However, the judge disagreed and eventually determined that the statement 
would be admissible as evidence. In South Africa, an accused person who enters a plea of not guilty in a criminal matter has the opportunity to give a statement to the court explaining the basis of their defense. This is called a plea explanation and is separate to the testimony during a trial. When Henry gave his plea explanation, there were some notable discrepancies compared to his original police statement. Now he claimed that there was more than one intruder, saying that after his family was attacked, he heard men in the house speaking angrily in what he thought was Afrikaans. Another detail Henry changed was the claim that he, Martin, and Rudy didn't watch TV on the night in question, but a movie which has a loud soundtrack. Henry also had a new account of how much he opened the bathroom door after the attack began. Where he was positioned during the attack, the first time he saw the knife, and the nature of his injuries. He now said that Rudy was not only alive and gurgling after the attack, but was moving around violently. Yet Henry hadn't mentioned this in his call to emergency services. The state's case was that Henry murdered his family in a premeditated act. He subsequently staged a crime scene by inflicting his injuries and throwing an axe at the wall during the time between when he claimed he had passed out and when he called emergency services. He then lied about his involvement in an effort to mislead police. The axe had been stored downstairs, which meant Henry would have had to get out of bed to fetch it before walking back upstairs. The prosecutors instructed Henry to reenact his version of events when he encountered the killer after the man assaulted the family. While holding a replica of the axe used in the attack, Henry provided a detailed, step-by-step, matter-of-fact reconstruction of what happened down to which blows came from which direction and where they struck. He seemed to have an extremely clear memory of where he and his family members were in relation to the attackers at the time. It was a chilling experience for those looking on. The court heard that after killing Rudy, Henry took the duvet off his own bed and moved Rudy's body to near the ensuite door. The prosecutor alleged that Henry's facial bruises resulted from Marley hitting him with her fists while fighting for her life. The state argued that if Henry sustained a mild concussion from a fall due to passing out, the concussion wouldn't result in loss of consciousness for hours on end. A neighbor of the Van Bredas testified that between 10 p.m. and just after midnight on the night of the murders, she heard raised voices with an aggressive undertone coming from the family home, but she couldn't say how many voices there were. What people were saying or whether they were speaking in English or Afrikaans. When it was put to the neighbor if what she actually heard was the soundtrack of a movie the men had been watching, she rejected this. She stated that what she heard wasn't music, but verging on an argument. When video footage of the crime scene was played to the court, Henry turned away, declining to watch. In November 2017, with the trial still in progress, he experienced a seizure while he was at home with Daniela. Following tests, Henry was diagnosed with juvenile myoclonic. Henry was diagnosed with juvenile myoclonic epilepsy, a condition which starts in adolescence or early 20s. The defense opened their case by arguing that the evidence against Henry was entirely circumstantial and didn't support the allegation that he had attacked his family. They claimed that Henry's bloodstained clothing didn't automatically mean he was the one who committed the murders simply that he was in close proximity when they occurred. The defense also claimed that immediately following the murders, Henry lost consciousness for a period of hours 
because he had a seizure and his delay in contacting emergency services. When he regained consciousness, the seizure had affected his memory, which resulted in him only being able to recall specific details. A neurologist for the defense testified that if Henry had experienced a seizure on the night in question, he wouldn't have been able to fabricate an account of what had occurred. The neurologist stated that Henry's calm, detached demeanor during the emergency call could be explained by what's known as a post-ictal period. This is the time immediately following a seizure where the brain is recovering. When Marley's ex-boyfriend James appeared to testify, he told the court that he felt Martin could be controlling. Henry's paternal uncle Andre told the court that when he visited the Van Bredas house with Henry following the murders, Henry indicated he wanted some of his parents' wine collection and expensive bottle of Martin's whiskey. When Henry took the stand in his defense, he explained his family were normal and had the usual amount of disagreements, same as any other family. If there were ever any arguments between the children and their parents, it would have involved Marley, who he said was, quote, growing and rebelling. Henry stated he possibly passed out after the attack, either due to the shock of seeing Marley and Teresa at the top landing or from his fall down the stairs while he chased the intruder. Henry testified that he didn't suffer from any underlying medical conditions that would cause him to randomly lose consciousness or that he'd previously lost consciousness for more than two and a half hours. Henry testified that after regaining consciousness following the attack, he was confused and went downstairs without checking on his family. Henry said he scanned the numbers on the fridge as he felt they didn't appear of any assistance. He decided to contact emergency services directly to save time. Henry said he panicked, was breathing very fast, and lit a cigarette to calm himself down. He testified that while he was waiting for the phone to connect, he heard gurgling sounds from upstairs. When Henry was cross-examined, he adjusted his answers very subtly and contradicted himself. He couldn't explain how, if he'd passed out immediately following the killings, presumably falling over on his side, the blood flow down his chest and left arm dried in a way which suggested he was sitting up, not laying down. Henry told the court that the reason he called Bianca instead of an emergency service was because she was his only friend in South Africa at the time. Henry testified that he didn't recognize the axe as being one owned by the family. He also explained the presence of blood in the ensuite as coming from both he and Rudy's shaving, which he said they used to do in the shower. Henry denied having a shower to wash his family's blood from his body. In the end, Marley did not testify as a witness for either the state or Henry. Still experiencing memory loss, she did not wish to appear for the defense. The 19-year-old had been deeply distressed when she'd heard the news of her brother's arrest and was still being kept out of the public eye by Teresa's family. On May 22, 2018, it was time for the judge to deliver his verdicts. The court found that the defense's epilepsy diagnosis pertaining to the night of the murders was incomplete, not necessarily reliable, wasn't corroborated by independent resources or medical tests. In any event, if Henry did experience a seizure, it could at most explain his inappropriate and unsympathetic behavior after the murders but it wasn't evidence that he didn't kill his family. As Henry stood to hear the determination, the judge said, quote, Each murderous attack on a family member 
is a severe crime and warrants the severest punishment. They were attacks involving a high degree of uncontrolled violence. The victims were unarmed and faced an axe-wielding son or brother. Probably not expecting the worst. We have heard no explanation. You have shown no remorse. I'm searching for some human factor that to some degree diminishes the sheer seriousness of these crimes. After considering all the evidence, the result is inescapable. As a family man, it's difficult for me to say so. It is the only possible inference. In the, in the, in the premises, count one, the murder of Rudy van Breda, the accused is found guilty. Count two, the murder of Martin van Breda, the accused is found guilty. Count three, the murder of Theresa van Breda, the accused is found guilty. Count four, the attempted murder of Maria van Breda, the accused is found guilty. Count five, defeating or obstructing the administration of justice, the accused is found guilty. That is the unanimous decision of this court. Two weeks later, on June 5th, the court convened for the judge to hand down the sentences. As those present waited with bated breath, the judge delivered his remarks, quote, Your future wasn't bleak. In fact, it was bright. You had a supportive family and, more importantly, they had the means to assist you in your future endeavors. And it seems to me that they would have done so. At best, for you, we assume that the crimes were not committed in a vacuum, but are the product of some disgruntlement in the family. These attacks display a high level of innate cruelty and an almost unprecedented disregard for the welfare of one's own family. Each murderous attack upon a family member constitutes a very serious crime. Viewing all these acts cumulatively, it must rank extremely high on the ladder of serious crime. The violence was excessive and gratuitous. We have no explanation for what you did. You have displayed no remorse. We have heard extensive evidence of the consequences of your conduct, the cruel consequences. Yet we have no explanation from you. No substantial or compelling circumstances have been placed before us. There appear to be none. Your conduct warrants the severest possible penalty. Society expects no less. In the result, on count one, the murder of Rudy van Breda, you are sentenced to life imprisonment. On count two, the murder of Martin van Breda, you are sentenced to life imprisonment. On count three, the murder of Theresa van Breda, you are sentenced to life imprisonment. For the attempted murder of Mali van Breda, you are sentenced to 15 years imprisonment. On count five, obstructing the course of justice, for the administration of justice, as said out in the charge sheet, you are sentenced to 12 months imprisonment. All of Henry's sentences were to run concurrently. Following the decision, Henry made numerous requests for leave to appeal his convictions and sentencing to both the Supreme Court of Appeal and the Western Cape High Court. He also applied for leave to appeal to the Constitutional Court in June 2019, but this was dismissed two months later, as were his previous applications. Following Henry's imprisonment in Drakenstein Prison 
In Parle, he and Daniela continued their relationship. The Van Breda home in Stellenbosch was sold in 2017 for 6.2 million rand. Marley continues to recover thanks to the protection and support of her family, who shield her from the glare of the media spotlight. I think that about wraps things up. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.